Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. Back to the Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9 podcast. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty well. Ready to talk about some uh, Babylon 5 and Deep Space 9. Yeah, yeah. So we've got Playing God, which is a Season 2, uh, Episode 17 episode of Deep Space 9. It first aired on the 27th of February, 1994. And then we've got Grail, which is Episode 14 of Season 1 of Babylon 5 that first aired on the 6th of July, 1994. Uh, did you want to lead off on Playing of God, Matt? Or Playing God? Sure. And uh, in honor of Friends, I'm going to give you the uh, the, the Friends uh, summary of the show, and then I'll give you the actual A plot. You ready? <laughs> Did so, you enjoy the Friends reunion? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> I love watching old people talk about a show that they made millions and millions of dollars off of. Uh, anyway. Old people with visible plastic surgery. Yes. Don't forget. Very, they all look like Odo. All right. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so this is the one where Dax mentors a very boring Trill initiate. There you go. Don't yeah, you were very anti-Argen, right? Very yes, anti-Argen. Very anti-Argen. So... Anyway, the A-plot is Arjun, a Trill initiate, is assigned to Jadzia Dax. Herzon and, uh, and prior Daxes have a history of eliminating candidates, uh, and this forces Arjun to reconsider his future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then in the B-plot, we have um, Jadzia and Arjun snag subspace seaweed when they're exiting the wormhole, and so the crew of DS9 soon discovers that this subspace seaweed is actually an expanding proto-universe, potentially full of life, raising all sorts of questions about uh, self-preservation of the station, playing God, etc., etc. And then in our C-plot, O'Brien plays exterminator to an infestation of Cardassian voles. Yeah, you gotta you gotta admit they did a good job of like tying in the playing God theme to all three plots. I'm not saying it's a good episode, but you know there was very thorough use of the playing God uh, theme in all three. So let's talk about Origin for a second. He is quite possibly the most boring character to ever arrive at Deep Space Nine. He, the acting was poor. 
He looks dull. He dresses weird. His backstory is incredibly lame. And I really don't care about him at all. I don't know why I just have these like very negative feelings towards this character. I feel like there was so much more they could have done with a Trill Initiate, since these are supposed to be like the best of the best, the brightest and brightest or whatever. But mm-hmm. it was kind of wasted on him. Have um, you ever met somebody who went to Harvard, Matt? <laughs> yes. Okay, I see where you're going. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, just saying. Uh, I, I just feel like he was like this like guy who's like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but my, my dead dad wanted me to do this, so you know, this is what I'm doing. I, I just can't stand that. I will say, I think I preferred Arjun to Jinxo on Babylon 5 this week, just because Arjun's character, while not very interesting um, or, you know, very well done, did feel a little bit more believable than Jinxo. But yeah, no, I mean, this was not exactly an embarrassment of riches for guest stars this week, despite the presence of some great character actors who we'll get to later. So you also had some problems with the Cardassian Voles, speaking of guest stars, right? Yeah, it looked like a damn Halloween prop you could get, like, anywhere in Cordy City. It was like... <laughs> I mean, the first time I watched this, I really thought, uh, there's this one scene where O'Brien is on the, like, the line with a, a Cardassian. And I just remember that, for some reason when I was younger, I thought that was Goldicott he was talking to. So what you're saying is when you were younger, you uh, thought all Cardassians looked the same, Matt? Is that what you're saying? Uh, Exactly, yes. And (laughs) I thought O'Brien was... I thought O'Brien was talking to Goldicott about it. But now that I've... Now that upon rewatch as an adult, I'm like, oh, okay, wait a minute. That wasn't Goldicott. Because that would have been really, really weird if he's calling them up about, you know, know, how to exterminate the bulls. I don't know. I I could see uh, Goldicott, like, just trolling O'Brien about that. I mean, it does seem kind of weird that, like, an enlisted guy is talking to a Cardassian captain or the the equivalent of a a captain. But I I could see Ducat being petty enough to troll that. As, As a side note, I've recently been reading some Thanos comics, and I didn't know this, but apparently in the Marvel Universe, Thanos just randomly shows up and tortures individual humans on Earth. Uh, just knowing that the Marvel heroes will never notice and they can't stop him. And I, I could see Goldicott having that similar energy of just, he puts in random calls to like Major Kira and Dr. Bashir just to torment them. One thing that was brought up though in the episode, do you think that the bowls were actually possibly like a, uh, this like weird Cardassian plot to force the Federation out of Bajor? I don't know, kind of I... like when they put rats in castles, you know, to like try to yeah. I, I didn't read it like that when I was watching the episode, because, I mean, you know, I think, like, you know, for, to kind of go with the rats examples, like rats on ships at sea are a common enough problem that, you know, you don't have to go to sabotage for that. But, you know, it could be. I, I, I like it as a theory. I've been listening to uh, this great podcast, Blowback, about um, the U.S.'s Cold War on Cuba for the past 60 years. And, you know considering some of the things we tried to do to undermine the Cuban economy and kill Fidel Castro, like, you know, I can imagine, I can imagine us sending voles. So, you know, in this, in this analogy, I guess Deep Space Nine is Cuba and Cardassia is the uh, Imperial US of A. So who, who was that Cardassian? Oh, he's great. He's great. Um, he's, his name is Goli Vec, and he's one of the very few characters to show up on all three of the 24th century Star Trek shows. Um, he had minor roles in, Next Generation Season 7 in this season of DS9, and he's in the pilot of Caretaker. I believe he's the guy in charge of the Cardassian ship chasing Chakotay's Maquis ship. And not not a very, like, 
interesting character just because he's never given that much depth but um still kind of cool that i think he and quark and a couple of others are the only three to appear I, maybe Riker are the only are the only ones to appear on all three of those 24th century shows and he's played by Richard Poe who's a really great character actor um I love him for doing the audiobook for Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy which is one of the greatest American novels of all time and it, kind of like with Faulkner like McCarthy's like a whole different experience as an audiobook because the language has a real oracular quality to it and so hearing it read is a lot different than just reading it so I really highly recommend people if you're at all interested in like westerns or great American literature listen to Richard Poe read Blood Meridian for the audiobook it's beautiful so we pretty much exhausted the C plot we got we got it fit covered let's go to the, <laughs> the, the, the best plot the I, best I think. plot out of all three <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to the B plot. Really, we were talking about the proto universe. There's an exchange between the the crew at one point that I found interesting. Kira actually wants to destroy the proto universe, comparing it to stepping on ants. And Odo says, "You know, I don't step on ants, Major." And then I feel like this uh, returns to that same theme we saw with maybe a uh, pup and what constitutes life. And there's, I felt there was also this parallel in the episode when Cisco wants the bowls taken alive at first. Let's go back to the bowls. Cisco <laughs> wants the bowls taken alive at first, but then changes his mind once he realizes the infestation is kind of getting out of control, and he knows that he needs to just kill them. Uh, what are you, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, you really wouldn't expect Odo to be very, a very compassionate guy, you know, being that he's a cop and, as we never cease to remind you, a collaborator with both Cardassia and later the Dominion. But on the other hand, like, you can kind of see, like, <clears throat> that Odo being mistreated for the first few years of his life and dealing with a lot of kind of like prejudice and misunderstanding from solids, you can kind of see why he's pretty sensitive to how we define life and not abusing, you know, even the creatures like ants who are defined as like lower creatures, quote unquote. Yeah, and it, it was a kind of nice character beat for Odo. I don't think it was handled that well, but it was a nice character beat. Yeah, I thought it was pretty, I thought it was pretty interesting too, just uh, you know, Odo's take on that. Because you are correct. Like, I feel like, and we've gone back to this before, I feel like when, when uh, Odo was the investigator on Turok Noor, he had to have been a little more, a little meaner. You know what I mean? Like a little more aggressive. I mean, I, I will say I had forgotten that flashback episode we talked about a couple of weeks ago where we see why Ducat kind of sets up Odo as the as the chief cop on Terok Noor. And I have to say that was fairly persuasive um, and a, a pretty plausible account, much more plausible than I remembered. But still, I mean, you just you just can't be law enforcement for a brutal occupation and keep your hands dirty or keep your hands clean, rather, even if you know the even if the occupier does have an interest in like positing you as a neutral guy or a fair-minded guy in order to get an advantage in other ways which is you know how it's presented of why ducat made odo his chief investigator but yeah just there's just no way to be the chief investigator in that scenario and keep your hands clean and we'll get to this later on in uh, season two but when we see mirror universe odo that's more what i kind of expected out of a Cardassia. Oh, that's in, that's interesting. I don't even remember Mirror Universe Odo. I'm looking okay. forward to seeing that. Do Do you like the Mirror Universe episodes of DS9? To go a little on a tangent, right uh, uh, they're okay. Uh, I know after seeing Discovery and its version of the Mirror Universe, it's kind of weak. Like DS9 is kind of weak. Like, mm, but then mm. again, we never had a next gen Mirror Universe episode. 
Yeah, there, there was a really fun novel when we were kids called Dark Mirror by Diane Duane, who's one of my favorite Star Trek novelists. Um, she did like Spock's World, which is a really great book, and she really fleshed out the Romulans, although that was all been disregarded. Um, but yeah, she, she had a Next Generation um, Mirror Universe book that I remember fondly, but uh, honestly, I can't remember the details very precisely or clearly. Yeah, I, really I think I like the Mirror... Oh, yeah, I haven't read any of the Mirror Universe comics. Mirror Universe comics are fantastic, for Next Gen, at least. Those are the ones I've read. I've, I've enjoyed those. I do, I do have a very controversial theory about why the Mirror Universe and Discovery is so good, but uh, that it's a very controversial theory, and it would be a bit of a divergence, so maybe yeah, we'll yeah. get save, into it right save, now. Save it for the Mirror Universe episode, because I feel like that's going to be a big plot point, because this is the first time we... You know, it was the first time we went back to the Mirror Universe since Kirk. You know, yeah, was, yeah, since so, Mirror Mirror. Because, yeah, yeah, they didn't even do it. They didn't do it in the animated series either. Yeah. It's just strange, like, when they, they picked up from that. But it, It's it, kind of funny to imagine, like, if the Star Trek movies had been made under the conditions that, like, the Marvel movies or, or the DC movies are made today. Like, to imagine, like, how different, like, those first six movies would have been. And, like, they went to some of the greatest hits, like Khan. But, you know, you just know, like, if that if those original Star Trek movies had been made today, they would have been doing like the mirror universe and the Romulans would have, would have been playing all the hits as it were. Yeah, they would have, yeah, they really would have. It would, it would be crazy. Uh, I don't know if it'd be good, but it'd be crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, one last question I wanted to ask you about um, this episode, Matt, before we get on to Babylon five was did you find Jadzia's reason plausible about why you need to be such a hard ass on Trill Initiates that, like, oh, if you get a, quote, weak-minded host, the symbiote will just overwhelm them? Uh, I felt it was, like, I felt it was kind of like bully culture in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I, I get it because, you know, I've, I've, had, I've had bosses like that before, and it didn't really help me. In my, in my experience, it didn't help me that much if somebody treated me that way. The other, the other characters we've been exposed to that have taken on the symbiote, such as in the episode, uh, what was the one we watched not too long ago? Oh, uh, with uh, John Glover. Uh, yes. The voice of the Riddler getting the symbiote from Dax. I forget his name, but yeah, that was a much better Trill episode. Than right. This, I way. mean, was was he weak-minded? Like, I don't know. That's uh, We don't know. I, I think that, if, as I recall, that one kind of did a good job of showing how the Trill symbiote would be subordinated to a strong personality. Because, like, as I recall, John Glover seemed to be pretty strong, on-minded. And, you know, there, was, there wasn't anything of, like, getting the, getting the Dax symbiote didn't, like, soften his callousness towards Jadzia, and it didn't create conflict. I mean, it did change him in other ways. Like, it created a division between him and his girlfriend that Cisco was able to uh, able to uh, exploit. But it didn't really seem to, like, change his fundamental goals or intentions or, you know, frankly, like, the fact that he was willing to, you know, indirectly murder Jadzia to achieve his ends, and the Trill, the Trill symbiote wasn't able to suppress that at all. Then towards the end of DS9, you know, we get Ezri Dax. I, I don't know if she weak-minded i don't know <laughs> like i mean I, yeah she certainly she certainly has circumvented all like the normal like training process of for right and i i think i haven't read a lot of the expanded universe stuff that deals with the trills after ds9 ended but I, i've said this on the show before but apparently some of that stuff sort of suggests that actually the the trill symbiotes 
aren't that invasive mentally and it's just a convenient thing that the join trill could tell the mass of unjoined trill to keep them content and to you know convince them that okay yeah you actually you actually couldn't join so it's just, just sort of a I, my, that's my understanding at least is in the extended universe it's more of a convenient lie that the joined elite tell the unjoined masses and i can totally see that because it, i mean that's what they want they want their their higher uh their higher cast to be like you know the ones who were joined and uh, you know, yeah and i mean i I, I just again want to stress street. how i see no connection at all to uh, how education and especially elite education operates in American society. There's just no similarities at all. I don't, I don't know why I'm even mentioning it. They're so yeah. distant. <laughs> that's, that's true. Right. <laughs> that's how you really feel, Bob. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Uh, b- bitter failed academic talking. All right. You want to transition to Grail, Matt? Yeah, let's talk about Grail. Uh, this is the one where, a feeder alien hijacks a Vorlon uh, encounter suit and mind wipes people. There you go. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. There you go. All yeah. Right. So we got Jinxo. He's a indebted gravity constructor who uh, worked on all five Babylon stations, um, only for the first four to be sabotaged or to disappear when he went on leave or he left the station for other work. Um, so he gets arrested again for petty theft and, uh, he gets released into the custody of his latest Mark, Aldous Gijek, played by David Warner, who's, uh, seeking the famed Holy Grail. And then in the B plot, we've got Deuce, uh, played by the great William Sanderson, a down below gangster who owns Jinxo's debt and, uh, is giving security problems, uh, by mind wiping all of the witnesses to his extortions and criminal rackets. And he use, does this with the old Centauri Bette Noir, a Nakalon feeder, which he hides in a stolen Vorlon encounter suit. Christy Marks actually wrote this episode. She's the creator of Jim and the Holograms from the 80s cartoon. She has this like long, apparently she has a long career in TV, animation, comics, and games, including multiple episodes for the uh, two early 80s Spider-Man cartoons, which I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, we, I feel like we should try and pay more attention to the screenwriters than we have, we, or the TV writers than we have. Yeah, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought her up. Um, I, uh, I'm not that familiar with her work, but I've certainly seen, I've certainly seen her name around a lot. You also get this, like, hint that, like, back in the 80s, like, if you were writing for cartoons, you were, like, the shit. Like... <laughs> oh, like, I, 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 my impression is quite the opposite. Oh, you think so? I mean, JMS, he wrote, I mean, he was writing Ghostbusters cartoons. Yeah, but I mean, like this, going from like TV, TV, sci-fi to cartoons and back again, like you're still, I think in the industry in the 80s and the 90s, you're you're still a second or a third tier writer. If you're doing, you know, not that you actually are, but you're just viewed as that by, you know, you're not writing for like the practice or law and order, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of a, I'm not going to say shitty writing, but but just, it's just the weird take in general. What is this grill shit, Bob? What what is this? Does, does, <laughs> does Arthurian legend like does it play like heavy in the remainder of this show? Like, am I going to have to like try to combine Arthurian legend and sci-fi? What's going on? Um, it does come up a lot, but it I I guess. It only comes up in a few episodes that I've seen from Babylon 5, and I've seen most of it, but it's a 
pretty heavy in the episodes it comes up like this one uh there there's another one that oh boy you're going to love um but yeah it's a it's a i don't know you could read it as a constant theme i honestly think if you were mapping out influences on babylon 5 uh jr tolkien's lord of the rings is probably a bigger influence than arthurian legends but you can definitely make Arthurian legend connections to uh, to Babylon Five, and the the writers definitely want you to make those connections. So yeah, kind of brace yourself. Um, I, I know that, one. I know one of the spinoffs is called the Crusade or Crusade or something like that. Is that? Yeah, I haven't watched any Crusade yet, except for like I think I saw the premiere when we were kids. Uh, but if, from what I understand about the setup, I mean the ship is called Excalibur. The captain is an Arthur figure. He is, uh, we haven't met these yet. I, I actually kind of hate them, but apparently Babylon 5 fans love them. There's a thing called the Technomage. And so he has a Technomage as his advisor, who's basically a Merlin figure. I, I really hope they just go all in and have like a Green Knight analog, because I the only Arthurian legend I really love is Guy went in the Green Knight. So that that's a lot that's coming. Uh, apparently that was kind of big on TNT. Uh, back in the day, because I remember around the same time as Crusade, maybe like two years after, um, they did a Arthurian miniseries called Mist of Avalon. Do you remember watching that? No, I never watched that. It had like Juliana Margulies as the lead, and it was like sort of like a feminist revisionism of the, like, the Arthurian mythos. I don't know. I just remember watching that as a kid, and there was a lot of incest and a lot of nudity, so I was into it. Oh, God. Game of Thrones on TNT. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen that uh, internet video that's like, what if Game of Thrones was made in the in the nineties? No, I didn't. I it's like it. an opening credit sequence, and they get a they get a lot of footage of that. I think it's the actors when they were younger, and like it just it just looks very much like a cheesy nineties fantasy show that like we would have seen in syndication at like you know seven a.m. on a Sunday morning. Um, it looks great. We're introduced to Aldous Ga Aldous Gajic Gajic God, their name Gajic Gajic Aldous Gajic. Uh, he's played by David Warner, and we know David Warner from like a ton of stuff. He was in Star Trek V: The Final Frontier. He played Ambassador Saint John Talbot. He was a Klingon Chancellor Gorkon in Star Trek VI. He was a Cardassian torturer Gold Madrid in Star Trek uh, Next Generation Two Parter chain of command he was actually the voice of uh raz al ghul on batman animated series <laughs> but i'll just say it that way just to maybe piss you off and played uh he played jor-el on uh lois and clark new adventures of superman and uh i i remember him when i first saw him i was like i know that guy he was the uh tgri scientist from uh teenage mutant girls 2 the secret of the ooze <laughs> he was in the uh he was in the scene at the end of the movie where they're doing the uh the ninja rap yeah oh god he poorly, oh god. He poorly dances it's pretty funny but, oh wow I, I didn't know uh, david warner had a uh, experience in really bad early 90s hip-hop dancing oh, it, was, it was bad it was bad that's amazing yeah i i knew his name and i'm pretty sure i knew he was the guy in star trek 5 playing the kind of hapless federation ambassador but i didn't realize that was him under all the makeup for galron and madrid in the other in the other uh, star trek shows um, uh, one thing or two things I like him from, he's a, he plays a crooked South African from Hong Kong, uh, in Twin Peaks season two, who's like a business partner of Josie Packard. And then he's, uh, in one of my favorite John Carpenter movies in the mouth of madness. 
Did you uh, recognize William Sanderson, the guy playing the crime lord Deuce? I did not actually until you pointed it out. Yeah, yeah, he he's really great. Um, I I love him as E.B. Farnham, who's sort of a criminal accomplice in uh, the TV show Deadwood. And it's really funny that he's such a sniveling little shit on uh, Deadwood. But, you know, in the world of Babylon 5, he's like the, you know, the real hard ass crime lord. So it's just kind of a funny, uh, funny comment, I think, on like the world of Babylon 5 versus the world of Deadwood. Did, did you uh, prefer him to as a crime lord to Negrath or Zorak, as we took to calling Negrath from earlier episodes? I really want Zorak back. Uh I don't know if I mentioned this before, but on eBay, they're legit selling like a prop of Zorak from the show. And it's you did, like, but that's still amazing and worth highlighting. Yeah, I actually messaged the guy because I was like, how how large is this thing? It's tiny. And he sold oh, really? a crazy amount of money. I, I guess they like zoomed in really far on it, like to get to that effect. <laughs> yeah. It's huge. But man, it's like, it's really small. And I was like, yeah, man. Because I really want like a full, like full scale thing just to like stick in my basement and send, like, send people down there occasionally. <laughs> go ask, go ask Matt, Matt, for Matt, do you keep a, a variety of unemployed <laughs> refugees in your basement? Is that is that what goes on? Apparently, at Casa I, de I Williams. Would, yeah, I would. I mean, I'd love just to have a huge full size Zorak just sitting down there. So when people walk down the basement stairs, they're like, "Oh, okay, there's there he is." I just see you threatening uh, your uh, threatening your brother's new kid of "Don't make me send you down down below with Zorak." <laughs> One thing I noticed in this episode is when. Delin starts talking to Gad Gajic. I can't remember his name. Gajic. as a true seeker. She also believes Sinclair is a true seeker. What's this mean? I mean, it, to the extent it means anything, it, it will slowly be revealed over the course of like, the show. I'm slowly getting like these, like, you know, the whole point of this podcast is, you know, Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9 and how they have a lot of similarities. And with like lines like that, I keep thinking that Sinclair is going to be like a prophet or something like that. Like I'm getting that same like feel when Delin like looks at him. It reminds me of when like uh, it reminds me of in the episode Emissary when Baca, you know, you know, talks to Cisco about being the prophet and all this shit. Like I feel like we're going to see this again. Like this is what we're going through again. You're you're definitely not wrong, although I don't know how much. Like, because I, I think what the show actually does with Sinclair is pretty different from the show's original plan vis-a-vis Sinclair. So I, I don't know enough about JMS's original plan or like what he knew or didn't know at this point in production about the actor playing Sinclair leaving the show. So I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can necessarily speak to speak to that gap, but yeah, you're as the show does actually play out. You're not you're not wrong, and I'll just leave it at that. Okay, Sinclair's got Cisco vibes. Okay, all right. And I mentioned this in a previous episode about there being like like two casts. There's a religious cast in Mumbari culture and a warrior cast. So you got the religious cast, the uh, warrior cast. I saw this actually was written in the in the Babylon Five RPG thing. Uh, Delin is she part of the religious? Yeah, yeah, she and Lanier are both religious cast, and I think this is the first explicit reference to the cast system on the show, but we have had a lot of talk in earlier episodes about, like, the Minbari warriors in particular, like, 
the rogue guy who turned out to be the villain in the TV movie. And then I think there were a couple of other Minbari warriors who've shown up. I guess the question I have to ask then, like, that I don't know for sure, is the rest of the Grey Council religious cast, or are they a mix of warrior cast? How does so, that um, the gray cast or the gray council's cast structure is that each cast gets three seats. Um, so there's a third cast that's not mentioned here, the worker cast, which might be that uh, JMS hadn't fully figured it out at this point, or it might just be that he means for it to be that uh, Lanier and the Minbari in general don't view the workers as very important or social equals to the religious orders and to the warriors. But each cast gets three seats. Um, it's a little weird because I there's a lot of Minbari politics in season four. You're going to get all the Minbari politics you might, will ever want and far more in season four of the show. And the implication from season four, as I remember, is that the workers have really been marginalized in their three in their three seats, even though, you know, they have a third of the voting power and they've been kind of disenfranchised and disrespected for most of Minbari history. But on the other hand, that seems a little bit in tension with Delenn talking here about how unanimity between the religious orders and the warrior orders is rare and bad. You know, and she specifically says it's a, you know, it's a horrible thing when they agree. And I, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that when she's talking about the last time the the warrior cast and the religious cast agreed, she's talking about the Earth-Minbari War. So yeah, it, there, there's a little bit of tension with like what that comment would seem to say and the voting strength of the workers would seem to suggest versus what we're told Minbari history actually consists of. So I, I, I can't really resolve it. I'm sure that might have been gone into details more in the one of the RPG guides or in one of the novels because there's a couple novels set on Minbar. Um, but yeah, I, I did I did like her point about warriors and religious caste agreeing being horrible. And it kind of seemed like to me, at least like you could read it as a kind of funny commentary on how awful U.S. bipartisanship is, especially under like Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, where, you know, the only thing Republicans and Democrats tend to agree on are starting wars, cutting social spending and uh, curtailing uh, civil liberties. So I don't know. I, I enjoyed that political read of what Delenn was saying. The next scene that I want to talk about was there's like this courtroom scene. It's the first time we see that. And to me, it seemed out of place. Uh, you thought differently, though. What was your take? I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, like, you do need, uh, you know, mediation structures and legal structures uh, on a space station this large, especially with um, the number of, you know, different, you know, I guess, I don't know if the term nationals is appropriate here, but it seems like the best term. You, you have all these different, like, uh, alien nationals passing through. So, it seems like you do need some judicial and mediative authority, but also it seems like you would want that authority to be somewhat limited because it's necessarily dealing with citizens of other, you know, other empires, other republics. And so calling it an ombuds makes a certain amount of sense to me. Um, yeah, I mean, like we see we see that he uh, seems to have juris the two ombuds that are mentioned. They seem to have jurisdiction over everyone at the station. But because we see like Centauri and Vree appearing before the court, but you know, it also seems like they maybe have 
limited punitive powers for people who are not Earth Alliance citizens. So, you know, they can maybe briefly imprison them or expel them or fine them. But for more serious stuff, maybe they would have to extradite them, you know, back to the Centauri Republic or back to the Naran regime or whatever. Um, it, it is a little, I think it's also, this is maybe more the European sense of the word ombuds. Like from my time as a, as a labor organizer and from working in universities, when I hear the term ombuds, I think of like an organizational mediator. And I would just say, you know, don't ever go to an ombuds person if you have the option of going to your shop steward, because in organizational context, even though ombuds are presented as like neutral mediators, their real job is to cover the employer's ass. Their job is to not to look out for like an individual employee's concern. So if you have like a sensitive situation around your employment, around a dispute with a supervisor, if you have union representation, you need to go to your union representation who is legally uh, empowered to fight for your best interest, unlike the ombuds, who is legally empowered to look out for the best interest of the employer as a whole. Yeah, and then going back to DS9 for a second, when, you know, when they, during the episode Dax, when they had the courtroom, they actually had to clear our corpse bar to put Dax on trial. So they don't even have a court system there at all. Yeah, we talked about how kind of Wild West it was, right? Right. Kind of reminds of scenes in like Deadwood or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance where they have to set up, a, you know, a sort of temporary courtroom in a bar. Yeah, it seems like there would be like something long term like there as well. I mean, I think it's mainly the influence of Gene Roddenberry, who apparently really didn't like lawyers. And that's why there aren't that many uh, lawyer episodes of the original series. I mean, there's a couple like Court Martial and Azury, but you don't see lawyers very often in original series or next gen. And I think that was just Gene Roddenberry didn't like lawyers. But uh, on a certain sense, like maybe that's part of like Star Trek's utopian future where you don't need the lawyers so much. But on the other hand, it, it is a little kind of unsettling because as dystopian as the babylon 5 future is in some ways like you know you're just you're going to need like a legal system to adjudicate disputes and you know assign criminal penalties for antisocial behavior to a certain extent so like the fact that there's just no law at all on ds9 besides like this cop odo who used to collaborate with a totalitarian government is uh, maybe not the most reassuring thing from a from a civil libertarian perspective just leave it up to odo he can get it figured out <laughs> I don't know. Do you, do you trust Odo to rule fairly, Matt? I don't know that I do. I want like a show with Odo as like the judge, like Judge Judy type stuff. Judge Odo. <laughs> judge Odo. I totally watched that. I mean, I you do get to see him be a sniveling corporate lawyer on uh, Boston Legal. I think maybe that's the closest you get. <laughs> yeah. All right. So pivoting, let's pivot back to Jinxo for a moment. Why do they let Jinxo on the station? With his history, why even let this man off Earth at all? Like, why? He's a highly skilled worker in an in-demand field uh, on the most important project of Earth civilization. That does not... No. We, <laughs> he's, his name is... No. And he, he should be on the station. When every time he leaves one, it, it something happens to it. No, he, he's... Leave him on Earth. There's other people well, just as qualified as he is, I'm sure. They don't... Especially... Judging by like how he acted on the station. Well, they say they don't even officially make the connection between him and the stations until after the third one goes. Yeah. And I mean, cl clearly like not everybody believes in the jinx, like Jinxo believes in the jinx and like 
certain he convinces other people of it but like garibaldi and Iv- ivanova and sinclair all seem pretty skeptical as i recall they, they still call him jinxo bob they still know that they they still call him jinxo because he he's a jinxes the station like i mean i i i call a friend of mine a pimp matt but i don't believe he runs sex workers <laughs> I, I just think it's insane like i would not let the dude back on the station i would be like there's something weird going on there that the yeah, after after the third time, that, that's it. Let's talk about some of the one of the other things, the the speeder thing, the the alien or whatever that was inside the the, the suit. Actually, good CGI for the time. I was actually happy with it. Uh, you might regret saying that uh, once we get to a later season one episode. Um, I'll uh, it I, I'll I'll just leave it at that. Uh, although I guess I can say that the that season one episode that's coming. Uh, Makes it very ironic, uh, Malari's fear of the feeder. Very ironic indeed. And uh, props to the uh, to the writer once again, because I was totally fooled into believing Kosh had been like mind controlled up until the end. I I think that's just because you're prone to believing the worst about Kosh, Matt. Yeah, maybe. But <laughs> I, I don't. I, I it's hard for me to remember what I first thought when I watched this episode a couple of years ago. But I'm pretty sure I didn't believe that was actually Kosh at any point. But maybe I'm flattering myself. When, like, his helmet thing or mask or whatever, like, raises up. and like, Oh, gosh, we're going to find out who it is. Like, but, like, there's no light on it, and it's, like, more open than it should be. Yeah, yeah, you got, you're reading into it much further than I did. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's just because, uh, unlike you, I can bear to look at uh, Kasha's encounter suit for long periods of time and notice small details. <laughs> disturbing. Yeah, I can't stand. Like, that's what I want to, like, go to work in one day just to see what happens, like. In, in an encounter suit and tell people I have to wear this. <laughs> to, like, you can o- you can only do it if you you are as cryptic as Kosh. That's yeah. that's the that's the conditions we have to set on that. Going with this cryptic, going him being cryptic. Uh, I have to say that the line at the end was awesome. Uh, you know, there's that exchange between he and Sinclair where Sinclair's like, "We've confiscated the fake encounter suit. It's a pretty close match to your own, at least on the outside." And then, why? Yeah, why? Deuce wanted to make people think he had the Vorlons working for him. He figured it would add to his image and intimidate people. Why? Well, after all, no one knows exactly what you look like. That makes some people a little nervous. Good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, that's awesome. Like, it's like... <laughs> yeah, the the one word the one word answers are great. Uh, I I did love that meme you recently retweeted of. Um, Kosh uh, trying to get Sinclair to uh, help him make Pornhub work on yeah. a monitor. <laughs> yeah, if you're not if you're not subscribed to our Twitter, you need to go down there because it's like nonstop Babylon Five memes for me and uh, random ass comic book stuff from Bob. So just, we need to start just hashtagging our own names. <laughs> oh, Although I will admit, Bob's had the most retweets. <laughs> so people people like my niche sensibilities. Yeah, Matt. they do. They do. They, 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 I've heard the reports. They just say you're too normie. <laughs> I know what I like. Right, anyway. <laughs> we also get the uh, another meme-worthy quote from Ivanova at the end. The no boom today, boom tomorrow. There's always a boom tomorrow. What? Look, somebody's got to have some damn perspective around here. Boom. Sooner or later, boom. Uh, and I'm like, okay, that seems like foreshadowing or even adds more to my whole thing that I think Ivanova may be like on the inside somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I guess it can be foreshadowing, but on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, we know the show makes it uh, five seasons and, you know, presumably the station makes it five seasons too. I think that's a 
safe assumption given that it's in the name so in that way it, you know uh, although i will say you know you could take it as a general statement of ivanova's russian and jewish pessimism and her sense of black humor that garibaldi and uh, sinclair don't appreciate and so i appreciate it very much in that context i did read up on some stuff about jms uh he said that in an earlier version of the story uh cautious kind of appears out of nowhere and kills the feeder and then says something like, some things we do not allow. But it seemed just like the uh, episode, episode Death Walker, same finish. So I decided to drop it. Yeah, and of, of the two, I'm kind of glad they dropped it here. Because I think it's a much more effective ending for Death Walker than it would have been for this episode. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And in some ways, like it, it also, like, him using the countersuit, the encounter suit maybe seems to further the Vorlon agenda of, like, being mysterious and inscrutable. Like that, you know, in that in that way, it doesn't necessarily seem that like Kosh would take umbrage with it. All right, so let's transition over. We've we've covered both shows. Let's talk about Thirst Watch for a moment. When Arjun arrives early at Dax's quarters, he's greeted by this alien humanoid named Trajok, and Dax is wearing nothing but a towel. And there's some dialogue about wrestling, but you know we're able to read between the lines what was going on. I mean, I think the I think it's supposed to be taken at face value and. Arjun the prude uh, can't take it at face value um, like so I, I don't know I, I kind of thought that's what they were going for I mean I do really like the transformation of Dax from like the sort of like flat meritocratic expert in season one to this like kind of you know kind of like big energy party girl in season two like I really enjoy that transition and I'm, I'm really enjoying Dax's character as a whole um, I it I remembered from my last watch through of DS9, I, I felt like Dax didn't get interesting until um, the Blood Oath episode later this season. But honestly, I'm kind of already, I'm already kind of here with like here for Dax. Like she's great. It's it's really funny, and I really like how Arjun has like these traditional meritocratic expectations about what a trill should be, and Jadzia, partially under the influence of Curzon, just totally uh, throws those out the window. When was the last time you watched Blood Oath? Uh, four or five years ago. I, I'm not arguing that it's a good episode. I'm, just argue, <laughs> I'm arguing that it's a, it's a good use and representation of Dax. Okay. Okay. Just making sure. Just making sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's also nice to have the, the three Klingons from the original series back. They're all very cool, but no, like it's a great idea, great character work, but not a great episode. I, I would concede that. And then, uh, in, at some point, Quirk gives off one of his rules of acquisition, number 112, which is never have sex with the boss's sister. Sound advice. Okay. Very good. Uh, nothing to report from uh, Babylon 5. Garibaldi's keeping his pants, so we're good there. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Garibaldi's uh, been a human relations uh, or uh, employee relations nightmare. So we'll shift over to Econ Watch. Uh, Found out they use ATMs on Babylon 5. Yeah, is that still the best way to get a good exchange rate on currency? Probably. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, you've, tra you've traveled out of the country more recently than I have. Uh, probably not, no, but, I mean, when you're there, you don't really have much of an option <laughs> unless you speak the language. Well, like, when I when I went to Oxford, like, 20 years ago, like, it was, you, you, you the what I was told was uh, find a bank that had a, an agreement with your bank and go just get uh, money directly out of the ATM, and that that was uh, even though that there was they'd hit you with a fee, 
uh, that would be a lot less than with a bank that your bank didn't have a relationship with, and it would be a lot less than a currency exchange spot. That's probably true. I, I did use, I actually did both at some point when I went to Russia. Uh, but yeah, it was a whole lot easier. And I think the, I think the exchanger was better on the ATM. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I just thought that was weird. Like they're still using the same, like, it, cause it was legit an ATM machine. He was like up at, <laughs> <laughs> um, so on Deep State Watch, I just had two things I wanted to bring up real quick. Um, one, we don't, we don't have like any direct mentions of a Trill Deep State, but we sort of have the specter of a Trill joining commission scandal, you know, similar to the recent U.S. college admissions scandals. That's always possible. So I always just want to pull on that thread. And then uh, and more importantly in Deep State Watch, I just want to say the Greys are real. They took your great granddad and liberal alien loving Earth ombudsman won't give you justice for it. So, uh, all right. So we're going to move on. We're going to talk about character of the week. And my character of the week is Kosh. I'll watch this episode thinking they're going to ruin his reveal uh, for some reason. I don't know why I thought they'd do that early on, but maybe they uh, But we return to the status quo and then they had that great exchange with Sinclair at the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with a really minor character. I really like uh, Kaga, the singing Klingon chef. He's awesome. Um, I think this is actually his second appearance. We skipped his first appearance, and he's mentioned a lot, I feel like, in later episodes of the show and other novels, but I don't think he's on screen that much. So just enjoy him while he's here. Kaga rules. All right, and then we're going to look at an episode of the week. Uh between the two, I'm going to have to go with Grail as being the better episode. Damn it. I was hoping you would disagree with me. We don't, we don't have, no, Grail is totally the better episode. I'm telling you. This yeah. Is, I it's mean, a I, bad, I, it's a bad idea done very well while uh, playing God is an okay idea done pretty badly. Yeah. The only thing I have about, that I liked about playing God was that we had an A, B, and C plot that all tied up together. Did uh, you put out our weekly poll, Matt? Oh, I, I did put out a weekly poll. I actually forgot about this. So, <laughs> so from the uh, episode Playing God, I asked the question to uh, one of the Deep Space Nine um, fan groups on Facebook. Should Dax recommend Arjun for joining with a symbiote? And roughly 62% of the people said that yes. And the others said no. So... I just want to put my caveat on, which is, I think, important. I don't think she should recommend him, but I also think she should uh, agitate to move troll joining to a random rather than a competitive basis. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big believer in lotteries as a, as a more just sorting uh, method than extensive application processes. This is, a, this is a sore subject for some people. I think you wanted to be a trip. <laughs> No, I, I, I just really hate the, the pretensions of liberal meritocrats. Yeah. <laughs> I really hate it. I've, I've had to work alongside it for, uh, for 15 years, and I fucking hate it. Yeah. That's all. It's, it's rough. It's rough. All right, so, so let's, talk ne- let's talk next week. We'll be looking at uh, uh, V5, Season 1, Episode 15, uh, Episode Eyes. Which uh, will feel very familiar because it'll be yet a, another episode where uh, Sinclair is investigated by the by the bad folks back home. Yes, constant internal investigations on Babylon Five, and Indeed. then on DS Nine, Season Two, Episode Eighteen, Profit and Loss. That's another Ferengi episode. This is a this is a this is a Garrick and Quark episode. 
delightful. Delightful. I'm I'm very excited for this. (laughs) All right. Well, I look forward to it. All right. Looking forward to it, Matt. Uh, This has uh, been Bob uh, from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. We are Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, b5vsds9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.